listening to Story City Church in Granada Hills, California. We exist to glorify God by leading communities into healthy relationships with Jesus and with others. And here is this week's message. All right, today we're going to be in Luke chapter number 15. If you want to stand with me for the reading of God's word, when I'm done, I'll say this is the word of the Lord and you can respond with thanks be to God. We're going to be in verse number 21 of Luke chapter number 15. The Bible says this. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back in safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I have been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of, of yours came, who, was, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this your brother, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Jonathan. How are you guys doing this morning? You guys good? I hope I'm louder than those... Uh, tree trimmers back there this morning, so sorry if you get distracted by that, but um, my name is Samir. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning, um, one of your pastors here, and it's just a joy every Sunday to get together. Um, I, I just want to say that this morning I was just reflecting on just how much I need Sunday mornings, how much I need to come and be a part of the family of God and remember and be reminded of God's love and to hear and sing songs of who Jesus is together in unity. I'm reminded that I am first a sheep before I am a shepherd in any way, and that's such a joy to be a part of the family of God together. Um, and so I just wanted to share that because I just, I love being with you guys. I thank you guys for encouraging me as you guys sing, encourage me as you guys come along and do life together. It's just a joy and a pleasure um, to be with you guys. We're going to be continuing our series in the Father's Heart. The Father's Heart is a series that we're going through through the story of the prodigal son. And so we're in our third week and some of you are probably like, all right, we've heard this passage again and again and again. What more can we learn 
from this passage. This is getting old, Samir. Like, what's going on? Why are we continuing in this? This is actually a five-week series. We kind of shortened it a week just because we recognize that there's only so many angles we can go in. But there's actually a lot of richness and a lot of truth that we can pull from that's new every week. Uh, And so that's what we're going to be doing. The first week, we talked about just the people that Jesus was speaking to, the people, the, the Pharisees and the tax collectors, and he was sharing this parable with them, right? And then the second week, last week, we talked about the two lost sons and how they went wayward and the ways they went wayward and what that meant for us. And today, what we're going to do is we're actually going to look at the highlighting of sin and lostness that Jesus reflects in this passage. He's sharing a story, but in the story, points out a lot of sin and lostness, and it actually is a way that is redefining what sin truly is in that time, and I think even for us today. So we're going to look through that specifically, and Jesus details that with such beauty that I think will really help us know how we then respond um, to who God is and who we are. So I'm really excited about that. Let me pray for us before we dive in and we'll jump in to that passage. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you do for us, that we get to be in your word, that we get to reflect in your scriptures, that we get to digest what you have for us. We get to take notes. We get to allow your word to transform us from the inside out, oh God. Your word is alive. Your word is speaking to us right here and right now. I pray, God, as we declare your truth, that you are highlighted, that you are elevated, and that we are under your authority, that we are under your truth. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear that you are God, and that you transform our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's this big understanding that I think a lot of us as humans want to grasp more and more, right? This idea of good and bad, this dilemma that we work through of of what's moral and what's immoral, what's right and what's wrong. And I think the worldview is very simple that common morality is known, right? Common morality as in treat people well, treat people right, treat people the way you want to be treated. Don't oppress people. Equality for all is important. Human rights is important. A lot of things that we desire as a human race, we desire justice and righteousness. I think the common person, if you would ask them, what would you want to see in the world? World peace, right? Justice for all. Everyone to be able. That's one of the things as our country, right? Justice for all is one of the things we desire. But why is it so hard to come by? Why is it something that you can commonly say across the board that everyone's like, yeah, that's what we want, but it's one of the hardest things that humanity is fighting for and is still not happening? Why is that? The Bible gives us some interesting perspective on sin, on morality, and and what does that really mean? But the reality is is that the biblical language that is used for morality is, is language that is kind of uncommon or unknowing in our common society. Like it's, it's words that are missing kind of a, a translation. Like words like sin, transgression, iniquity. Like these words, like if you go to a common person, like I don't know what you're talking about. But what do you mean by those things? What, what does that mean? It can be hard to connect the dots for people when it comes to scripture, the Bible, and morality along the lines of those that are around us. And so I hope that we can 
What I want to do is go through a little word study with you guys on those three words that's used very commonly um, in the Bible. Sin, transgression, and iniquity. I'll try not to bore you if you're not someone that's really that intrigued in, in word studies. I'll try to make it more engaging. Um, but there's three main ones that I think will help us grasp a little more of this thing called sin or this thing that we think of as doing the right thing. What's moral, what's right, and what's wrong. So the first word that we see a lot in scripture is this word called sin. Sin. So the original word for sin in the Hebrew is chata. Chata. That's the Hebrew word. It actually is, was never meant to be a religious word. The word was not meant to be religious. It's not someone that breaks rules. That's not what the word means. The word actually means to fail. Or, or to miss something. Like you're supposed to do this, but you missed that target or you missed the goal. It's a, it's a common word that was used in, in armies and soldiers when they would practice the sling that they would use, you know, the one that David used. That was a common way of, of fighting. When they would use that and they would fight, they would say when they missed what they were trying to get to, they say that you chatad your target. You missed your target. You sinned. That was the word. That was the word used. So it was a very common word word that was not typically supposed to be meant for anything moral. It was just you missed. And so the common word in the Bible for sin is really used in this idea of failure, of missing the mark, of missing what it means to be truly human. That's actually how the word is being used, that we're missing the way to be truly human. That's what the word sin is trying to reflect in the scriptures. That we're, there's a failure to love God and love others well because that's what we are created to do. So falling short of the goal, of the goal of being fully human, the way God designed us to be is what the word sin is meaning. It's not that you broke a rule, therefore you sin. Like there's a lot more rootedness to that word than just breaking a rule. The second word, they all relate somehow. Sometimes we look at all three of those and we think that they all mean the same thing. They don't. Iniquity is another word that we think, oh, it's the same thing as sin, right? It's actually not. The word for iniquity in the Hebrew is avon, A-V-O-N, avon, which actually means to be bent over or to be crooked, something that is not the way it's supposed to be intended to be, right? Like, so if a pencil is straight and it's supposed to meant to be writing, if, if it was crooked, it's, it's, it's incorrectly put together, right? It's wrong. It's not the way it was intended for. It's bent or crooked. Or in other ways that's used in scripture is perverted because it's bent over. Isaiah does an awesome description of what that really means. Um, he, he writes in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, he says, Indeed, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save, and his ear is not too deaf to hear. But your iniquities, your crookedness, your, your bent where you're not supposed to be, are separating you from your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not listen. It's this idea of being abnormal to what we are intended to be which is what separates us from God. It's not the action of breaking a rule that separates us from God. It's our intention of who we are called to be is now skewed and that separates us from God. 
So sin, iniquity. The third word, transgression. I thought that was the same thing as sin. It's not. I thought the same thing. And I was studying this. I was like, wow, this is cool. The, the, the third word, transgression, in the Hebrew is pesha. Pesha. P-E-S-H-A. Which actually means uh, to lose trust in the Hebrew, to lose trust or, or to violate someone's trust. It was, it was the common word used when nations would make an agreement, when nations would make a treaty, and someone would break the treaty. They peshawed that person or that nation. They, they, they lost trust. They violated the trust between the people. So this idea of broken relationship is what this word means, transgression, broken trust. Again, Isaiah does an awesome job of reflecting what this means. He says in Isaiah 59, later down that same area of, uh, that we were reading earlier, we hope for justice, right? As a people, we hope for justice. There is none for salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions, our broken trust, have multiplied before you, and our sins, our failures, our falling short, testify against us, for our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, our crookedness. Verse 13, transgression and deception against the Lord, turning away from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering lying words from the heart. Justice is turning back, turned back, and righteousness stands far off, for truth has stumbled in the public square, and honesty cannot enter. In Jesus' parable of the lost sons, we clearly see both sons desiring to pursue happiness and justice for themselves, but on their own terms, right? They're disregarding the true path of joy and happiness, the true fullness of humanity that they were called and created to live by. They fall into the missing of the mark, the missing of who they were really called to be, which is sin. Their crooked and perverted beliefs and behaviors, which is the iniquity of their heart, and the breaking of trust towards God, their transgression with the Father, the story of the Father. They lost trust, right? They lost trust with the Father, that they desired the stuff of the Father more than they desired the Father himself. They desired his stuff more than they desired him, the Father. So our big idea for today, if you're taking notes, I hope you are, using that little journal we have. If you don't have one yet, definitely grab one today. The first, the big idea of today's passage is the Father desires us to love him for him. How does that have anything to do with sin? The Father's desire is for us to love him for him. You see, in contrast to this big idea, Jesus shows us how both the sons love the father's stuff more than they love the father himself. They love the father's stuff more than they love the father himself. What I want to do today is I want to give us two observations and a question for us to consider today. Two observations and a question that would hopefully stir our hearts. And along with these, with these sons, my first observation is that the younger brother, his sin was that he didn't love the father. That might seem like, oh yeah, obvious. 
I think a lot of times we look at the younger son's sin as he took his money, he left, and he squandered it, and he did evil things with it. Although that's the symptom of his sin, the actual sin was the fact that he did not love the father. The symptoms of him not loving the father were all these things that happened in his life. He asked for the share of the inheritance from his father, his father that loved him. And in the Hebrew understanding, in the, in the Israeli understanding, is that the younger son gets a third of the whole inheritance, a third of all that the father owns. And in the story, this is a rich father. And so he tells his father, hey, I want my share. That means what I want is for you to be dead. That's literally what he's saying. He's like, to you, to me, you're dead to me. Give me my stuff. And so the father graciously sells a third of his portion and gives him the money. And he goes. That's what we see, right? In verse 12, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to the distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. The squandering and the sin that he really dove, dove into wasn't the true root of his sin. The true root of his sin was his inability to love his father well. And the reality is, is that the father then is seen in a shameful way in his community. In that culture, when someone is treated that way or seen to be given something that's not the time for them to be given and the, the son is now declaring that the father is dead, the people around him, the community around the father feel that, that shame has been brought upon the father. So the father now is not only losing his son, but is losing his own like, ability to, to be known and to be cared for in the community. The shame came upon him. It's a big deal. So, so the son is pursuing happiness. He's pursuing this understanding that he thinks he needs. This journey that Keller in the book, uh, The Prodigal God, that Keller calls it self-discovery. This younger son is pursuing self-discovery. This rebellious, I can do it on my own type of mentality. I can do it. I can figure it out. I don't need you, Father, for my happiness. I don't need you, God, for my happiness. I can figure it out. This journey of self-discovery in our context is the idea of saying, just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. It'll lead you to the right path. Although I understand the concept of follow your heart because it's like, hey, pursue your passions and things you enjoy. Great. I think that aspect of follow your heart is good. But the understanding of follow your heart because you think you're good and you can make the right decisions for yourself is where that fails. Because the younger son was feeling the same thing. He was following his heart. And he was led astray. It's dangerous when we think that way. This son desired the father's stuff, that was what his heart desired, more than his own father. He did not love his father. Similarly, the older son, which is my second observation, the older brother, 
His sin was that he didn't love the Father. We see two different life responses, two different actions of life, two different ways of living, but yet they have the same sin. They do not love the Father. The older brother demanded that his father owed him because he was a good son. That he owes me this. Right, we saw that in verse 28 and 29. Then he became angry towards the father and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I have been slaving many years for you and I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you've never, you've never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. He was being obedient just so that his dad can die and that he can take his stuff. Like he wanted his dad to assume this, this is a good son so that when he died, he can freely be able to receive the inheritance. There was no desire of a relationship because the reality is, is when the father displayed grace towards this younger son, the older brother was upset. Upset at the love that the father was displaying towards his brother. He rejected, to the point where he rejected the entry of the feast. He said, I don't want to go in. I don't want to celebrate with you. Just leave me alone. You didn't give me what I was deserving. The pursuit of happiness that Keller describes here is this moral conformity. A moral conformity where this pursuit of happiness and this view of moral conformity is that the happiness is only achieved when moral standards of the community are strictly kept and that a reward for one's goodness is given. This journey of moral conformity in our context is, is kind of like that highly religious person saying that my happiness and approval is dependent on my good deeds is dependent on how good I am. That my good works will reward me because I have achieved goodness or self-righteousness. I have a good friend of mine who's a pastor. Um, some of you might know him, so I'm not gonna use names. Um, he grew up going to church from a young age. Um, he went to Christian school all his life. He was, he was the good golden child. He, he was you know, in the word of God, he understood God's word well, the Bible, he was clearly, you know, walking in line with, with as a good child. He became a, he, came a, he became a middle school pastor, became a young adults pastor, and then as his term as a pastor, one of his friends, who was also a pastor, led him to understand God's grace and how God loves those who are broken and fallen, not just those who do good. And he, he said something to me when he recognized this. He said, I realized that I've been in church and I have been a pastor for all these years, but I wasn't even saved. I was like, whoa. That I didn't even love the father for who he is, but rather I did all the right things because of what he would give me. 
because of the reward of what God would give me. That's the only reason I did all these things in the way I was told. This was this moral conformity that he lived in, that he thought that this is the way you're supposed to do things if you want to be blessed. This is the way you're supposed to live because that's what the world around me, those that are around me in this Christian circle tell me to do it because I would be approved and given the thumbs up and put on a pedestal and given a role as pastor because I did all the things right. But yet, he recognized that he wasn't even saved. He didn't even recognize God's love the way God intended it. He's now pastoring still. He's pastoring through that reality of who God is in him, in that truth. So God redeemed that, which is beautiful. But what a, what a powerful story for us to recognize that good behavior and bad behavior both lead to sin and lostness. Both lead to sin and lostness. That our righteousness is nothing but rags. It's, it's garbage. It means nothing. That no matter how good we try to do things, how tidy we want to be, how perfect we want to look, it's all meaningless if our love for the Father is absent. It's meaningless. There is no formula of good behavior for redemption and wholeness. There is no for formula for it. There's only a solution, and the problem has been solved already, and that's Jesus. Jesus and him crucified and resurrected for the redemption of humanity, for those that embrace him, for who he is and what he's done is where now the relationship between us and the Father are made new and restored. Tim Keller says this, he says, this means that you can rebel against God and be alienated from him either by breaking his rules or by even keeping them diligently. That should spark something in us. That should be like, oh snap, I'm not just supposed to follow the rules and do all the right things so that I'm close to God and that I'm near to Jesus. Which brings me to my third, I guess, question for us. This is the question I want us to ponder. And I hope this is what is pondering in you when we're talking about this. How do we know if we love the Father? Or how do I know personally? How do I know then if I love the Father? I follow his rules. I, I do my best to obey him. I, I, I go to church on Sundays. I'm trying to figure this out. But how do I know that I actually love him and I'm not doing it for his stuff? His stuff is great. But what are we here for? What are we doing it for? I want to give us three ways and then we'll close. How do we know if we love the Father? First one, analysis, okay? An analyzing ourselves. The best first step to know if we love the Father is to respond the way the psalmist does here in Psalm 139, 23, and 24. He says, search me, O God. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Lord, will you search me? I don't want to be like the younger brother. I don't want to be like the older brother. Search my heart. I want to love you for you, not for your stuff. 
If we can posture ourselves in that understanding, if we can posture ourselves, Lord, help me. I'm in a hard place. I know I've been wayward and astray. I've been running, doing my own thing. I've fallen. I can't get up. Help me. I want to surrender because I just want your good stuff or I surrender because you are my treasure. Oh, God. You're my treasure. I desire you, not your stuff. It was the wealth, not the love of the Father, that they believed that would make them happy and fulfilled. My question to us is, is which son are we we relate to more? Which extreme do we kind of lean on? Because I think all of us, you know, are, are somewhat familiar with one or the other of the brothers. We're familiar with their reasoning, with, with the way they think. Like, we're not far off. We can't look at them and be like, they're, they're whacked out. Hey, we're whacked out too. Because we can lean towards these ways of living. Whether we just say, I can figure it out on my own, or whether we say, I just want to be morally right so that God can give me what I want. So the first one is to analyze ourselves. Analysis. Search me, O oh God, where is my heart? To know whether or not I love you dearly. Second one is my affection. My affection. Where are my affections? Do I, am I deeply near to you? And do I enjoy the Father for the Father himself? Do I come to church to, to, to draw near to Jesus and his people? Do I spend time with him throughout the week, even though sometimes I miss days? That's fine. It's not the point of, of being on task. The point is, are we seeking him for who he is because he draws near to us because of what Jesus did on the cross? Are we desiring him above other things? Is he our affection for who he is and what he's done, not what he can give us? The question is, would we want heaven, which is all the blessings that we hear in scripture, all the good things, the, 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 the beauty of heaven, would we want it without Jesus being there? If Jesus was not in heaven, if God was not in heaven, but all the blessings of heaven were there, would you still want to be there? That's a question to ask ourselves, to reflect on. Do we really want heaven because of its blessings or do we want the Father? Do we desire God for who he is? Because he's so good and lovely. Let us draw near to God today and remember that he is the treasure of our souls. He is the treasure of our souls. He made a way for us to be near to him through his son, Jesus. So let's analyze, let's reflect our hearts. Let's have affection towards the Father. And third, let's have action. What is this action? So my affection, my affection for the Father overflows. My love for him so deeply affects my life and my soul that it overflows out of me in response to loving others well, to loving God well. And in reflection to that, I treat others with respect. I treat others with the way I want to be treated, that this whole morality becomes this reflection of my heart towards the love I have for God. It's not about this check mark of morality. It's this overflow of the heart and love of God in me and through me as God's people. Hey, there's going to be times where we're, 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 we're in a, a spiritual high with God and it's good and it's easy to come by and there's going to be times where it's harder. There's going to be times where we feel a little more dry. It doesn't mean you don't love the Father. It just means that we just 
desire him more. I think, I think the absence or the recognition of knowing that I'm spiritually dry is actually, is actually a reflection of knowing that I desire the Father more deeply and that we can then turn and, and pursue him the way he pursues us. So it's not, a, it's not a do better and draw near to him. It's a, hey, he, he's there with us and that we can draw near to him even deeper through the affections we have for him. So how do we know if we love the Father? We're able to analyze our hearts, have affection for him, and our action reflects that. And so I want us to respond with this great news. This is such good news that we recognize that, that the sons of this story in the parable, their sin was that they didn't love the Father. It wasn't the response of their moral conformity or, or their self-discovery uh, of just going wayward, although those are the symptoms of their sin. The sin was their heart before the Father. And so let us respond as a people to drawing near to the Father and seek to respond in affection towards God because he loves us so well. Let's join in on the feast that he's inviting us into. He's, enjoy, he's, he's inviting us into the feast that has been given to us freely because of what Jesus did on the cross. What a joy that is. I want to close us with this verse. After I read this, this verse, I'm going to pray. But this is Paul describing the condition of our heart and the response of God and the way we then draw near to him. This is, I think, just puts a, a really a bow on what I'm sharing today. Ephesians 2, 3 through 9 says this. We too, this is us, all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and our thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses, you are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through kindness, through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift not from your works so that no one can boast. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the gift giver. But yet the greatest thing that we can have is you, Jesus. That you are the gift. That you are the prize that we can draw near to. That you are the prize that we desire more than any of the blessings you can give us. God, we repent right now. We, we draw to a place of, of, of brokenness and realizing like, crap, I've been doing this for the stuff, not for the Father. God, we repent. Will you search our hearts, O oh God? Will you shift and transform our desires and our affections towards you and only you, Jesus? 
Will you forgive us of our sin of not loving you? God, we recognize that the story and this parable that you shared to the tax collectors and sinners and to the Pharisees and religious rulers of that time were not just for them, they're for us. This story is for us. That we were created to be near to you, that we were created to be your children, that we were created to have affections for you, Jesus. That the fulfillment of our hearts and our souls and everything that we've been seeking and striving for is at your feet. We love you, Jesus. We thank you. Will you receive our prayers, our cries, and our needs for you? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. If you'd like to join us in person, our services are Sundays at 10 a.m. and we're located at 11011 Havenhurst Avenue in Granada Hills. Find us on Instagram at StoryCityGH or online at StoryCityChurch.com. Go and be the church.